Exodus chapter 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the firstborn of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. The firstborn is for the Lord. Now, of course, this relates to various things. Most importantly, the half shekel of silver for the firstborn. The half shekel of silver for the firstborn. It's not in this passage, but it refers, this passage refers to it. Remember, silver is always the price of redemption. Jesus was betrayed for silver. You shall redeem it for silver. Silver has to do with the price of salvation. It is opposed to gold. Gold is a non-corrosive metal that doesn't oxidize. It speaks of that which is eternal. Silver is of temporal value. Although our salvation has eternal merit, it is not a case where we were created to be saved. The fall of man and our need for salvation was an interruption, was a hiatus, was something parenthetical. We were always destined for gold. Now, again, we have other teachings where we explain the typology of the metals. Just bear in mind, this relates to the half shekel of silver for the firstborn, the firstborn of the father being Jesus. Sanctify to me every firstborn, the firstborn of every womb among the sons of Israel both of men and of beasts, it belongs to me. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place and nothing leavened shall be eaten. Now the Egyptians also had a significance to the firstborn, particularly the firstborn of Pharaoh, because he would be seen as not just the progeny of Pharaoh, but the progeny of the Egyptian god Ra. This, of course, was a satanic counterfeit of Jesus being the only begotten and in rank, the firstborn of the father. Now let's talk a little bit about this idea of firstborn. Firstborn. Firstborn has to do with biological birth. It has to do with biological birth, the firstborn, okay? But we have to define it very carefully relative to Jesus. Jesus was pre-existent. We must avoid those heresies that were around in the ancient church, and some of which are back today, that say Jesus uh, was born as any other man was, that was born as any other man was. He was not born as any other man was because, of course, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and he was the eternally begotten, the eternal monogenes of the Father. How then is he firstborn? Adam was created directly by God, but Jesus was born biologically through a woman after the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit, the Raka Kodesh, overshadowed Mary. Okay, so literally and biologically in that sense, Jesus would have been the firstborn of the Father because the Father never overshadowed anyone to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. Divinity was never conceived in human form other than Jesus and fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. Obviously with Sarah, obviously with the parents of Samuel, with the parents of John the Baptist, there have been supernatural conceptions 
there have been supernatural conceptions occurring contrary to the laws of biomedical science that, that God intervened and made these miraculous conceptions, these geriatric pregnancies, all of which foreshadow Christ. When you see a supernatural conception in the Old Testament, as with Sarah or, 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 or um, with, with Samson or, or John the Baptist, Ellie the priest of the, I'm sorry, uh, Sam, Samuel in the story of Ellie the priest, you are looking at something that foreshadows the supernatural conception of Christ in some way, that the Messiah would be supernaturally conceived. So while there have been other supernatural conceptions, there's only been one that was firstborn of the Father. Jesus was conceived as the Son of the Father eternally through the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, so biologically, we could call him the firstborn. Uh, now, it goes beyond that. Firstborn also means rank, precedence, preeminence. His being the firstborn is the preeminent of all born of women. Second in rank was John the Baptist. None born among women up to that time was greater than John, was greater than John. John was a unique man. John was the closest there ever was to, to Jesus. None born among women was greater than John. None was more righteous under the law, the Torah, than John. None. Uh, we have an old Moriel teaching called Men Not Like Other Men, and much of it focuses on John. However, Jesus is the firstborn in that he was the first one who was biologically God incarnate, born of, born of a woman naturally, um, although conceived supernaturally. But he also was the firstborn in terms of his preeminence, his predominance, his ranking. So the term we interpret as firstborn has to be understood ambiguously. It has to be understood both biologically and it has to be understood spiritually, both biologically and spiritually, having eternal ramifications. Okay? Let's continue. Nothing leaven shall be eaten. We've looked at the typology of leaven as a figure of sin and as an illustration of how the sin of pride works and so forth and going from generation to generation last week. On this day in the month of Aviv, or the month of Nisan, Aviv and Nisan are the same month. In modern Hebrew, Aviv, as in Tel Aviv, means spring, spring, okay? It's also the name of the season, spring, but it could be the name of the month. It, in addition to Nisan, either is correct. You are about to go forth. Now, when the Old Testament uses the month Aviv, says the month of Aviv, it does so for a reason. It does so for a reason. It has to do with the beginning, the beginning of the year. It's emphasizing the beginning of the year, not simply the same of the month. A new beginning, a time of beginning, a time when God is going to do something that is new, as distinct from a mere name for a month. And it shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers, to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, halav vidvash, that you shall observe this rite in this month, the perpetual keeping of the Passover. 
Now we are told God is going to displace these other nations. It is not simply, however, that God displaced these nations to give the land to the Hebrews. It was not simply that, that he drove these other nations out. Remember, when we read Genesis, we are told specifically that Abraham was there from the time of the Canaanite, or actually what it says is, when Abraham was there, the Canaanite was already in the land. At Elon More, God endowed the land perpetually to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. These other nations were there, but they multiplied in the absence of the Hebrews. They multiplied in that land in the absence of the Hebrews. But right from the time of Abraham, the Hebrews were in God's reckoning the indigenous people. And that is historically how it evolved and developed. They were always the first people of that land. These other nations developed, multiplied in the absence of the Hebrews during that 430 years. Abraham was there from the time of the Canaanite. We see that. We see what happened during the time of the rescue of Lot and so forth. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they had been there from the beginning. Some of these nations, the Canaanite, were there. Others of these nations arrived at a later point. Well, we see what's happened now with the rebirth of modern Israel and fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 11 and so forth. There are people who were there who were not indigenous, but they multiplied there in the absence of the Jews. They multiplied there in the absence of the Jews. The people who were there were heathen nations. These were heathen pagan nations that worshipped idols. They worshipped what Moses calls demons. He calls them Shadim, demons. The gods of these nations were demons. Okay, And we know that the god of these nations demanded worship, this demonic deity, through human sacrifice, sacrificing of babies and so forth. Okay? Hence, the religion, Moloch worship being the most famous, the religion demanded the sacrifice of the firstborn. Demanded the sacrifice of the firstborn. Going back to the time of Abraham, something in Judaism known as the Akedah, still commemorated on Yom Kippur, the Akedah, which is the binding of Isaac. The rabbis only partially understand the Akedah. What they don't understand about the Akedah is that it was a type of the father giving his only beloved begotten son, uh, who he received back in figure by resurrection. Okay? And then there was a ram given in its place. These Old Testament animals were sacrificed even before the time of Moses in the place of Isaac, okay? So it was a picture of the Messiah, of the messianic redemption. The rabbis don't see that. They don't understand that. They would reject it if it was explained to them, most of them, nearly all of them. However, what they do see is the Akedah 
was a divine prohibition against human sacrifice. It was a divine prohibition against human sacrifice, against sacrificing your firstborn son to these demon idols, these satanic gods. That's what was being practiced by the Canaanites and these other heathen civilizations were into all kinds of unspeakable debauchery. The debauchery involved every kind of sexual perversion imaginable of a homosexual nature, of a pedophile nature, and of a bestial, bestiality nature, stuff that was really sick. So when the Torah was given and God told Moses, you shall not commit these abominations as the nations, that's what the Canaanites were doing. And that became the moral justification for God's driving them out. One, Abraham was there before many of them, and he was there from the earliest of them. And it was bequeathed to him by God. He was as indigenous as any Canaanite. However, these other nations multiplied in the absence of the Israelites, of the Hebrews. Okay? And their demonic religion proliferated. Now, it's not our subject tonight. There are these, I guess some of them may still exist. There were hyper-Calvinists in the United States and South Africa. And it was ridiculous what they said. They took a prophecy of the sons of Noah from the book of Genesis chapter 9. And they said that black people had the mark of Cain. The black people had the mark of Cain, as in Cain and Abel. That, of course, was absurd. It was a complete twisting out of all reasonable context. Verse 25 of Genesis 9, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. It was not talking about black people. The Hebrew term for black people are Cushim or Cushites. Literally, as you've heard me say, the same term as Ethiopians. They didn't know about the Congo or Zimbabwe or things like that. They knew about black-skinned Ethiopians. The term for a black African, even in modern Hebrew, is, is the same as the term for an Ethiopian, someone from the land of Cush, Cushim, or Cushite, or Cushian spoken Hebrew. Okay? This is not a curse on Cushim. <laughs> this is a curse on Canaan's, saying that they were wicked. They were wicked people. They were doing all of these terrible things. The prophetic curse of Noah was indeed fulfilled. He said, blessed be the God of Shem. That's where the Jews and Arabs come from. And let Canaan be his servant. And God enlarged Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay. The Canaanites, you, you have Hamosemitic people. You have people who are a hybrid of African and Semitic in Africa. Okay. You have Hamosemitic people. But you also had Afro-Semites. You had Afro-Semites. And they still exist to a limited degree, howbeit for different reasons. The Muslims took, the Muslim Arabs took black slaves from East Africa 
and brought them up to the Arabian Peninsula and so forth. And they, they normally emasculated them. The reason you don't see a lot of descendants of black slaves in Arabia the way you do in the United States or Brazil or place or the West Indies is because the the, the Muslims um, emasculated them. They 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 just would rich, they would just castrate them. But some did survive. Some did survive uh, emasculation, and th th there is some offspring. So there is that. There is that. But that's all. These Canaanites were a wicked, wicked race of people. Now they become a picture. What these nations were become a picture of what the entire planet, what in the entirety of fallen mankind is going to be like at the time of the rapture and resurrection, at the time of the parousia. All of these debaucherous crimes ascribed to the ancient Near Eastern civilizations, particularly, but not limited to, the Canaanites. These things are going to multiply again before Jesus returns. Or we should say they are multiplying, and to a degree, they have multiplied. Now, the Hittites lived up by Turkey. They're not related to Turks, per se, too much. The Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Their practices, the killing of their children. Now, remember, the firstborn of, was seen at particular value. It was of the highest worth because he would, even in the Jewish law, he would get the double portion of the family inheritance and things of that nature. Um, the oldest son, um, still important in the Middle East to this day among um, nomadic peoples of the Middle East, Bedouins and so forth. Okay, so killing the firstborn was used in the worship of their gods. God said, no, I'm going to give my firstborn to save man. You don't kill your sons. This is evil. Human sacrifice is evil. Well, again, this kind of debauchery is going to happen on a wide scale. Read the Torah. What were they into? Killing their babies. Killing their babies. And they killed their babies thinking that it was going to bring them material prosperity. What we have now is abortion is an industry. It is a business. Very Less than 1% possibly of abortions are performed for any kind of legitimate clinical consideration. It's a business. It's an industry. And people do it for financial reasons. People do it for financial reasons. Um, horrible. Well, that's what the Canaanites and, and these other civilizations were doing before they were displaced by God for the Hebrews to come to the land of promise, and that is what the nations are going to be like before Jesus comes. What you see happening with the Exodus and the conquest under Joshua is a picture of what happens before between the rapture and resurrection and the terrestrial return of Christ to establish his messianic kingdom. One is a picture of foreshadowing of the other. More about that in a few minutes. Well, what else were they doing? They were into every kind of sexual depravity imaginable, not just homosexuality, but homosexuality with 
kids with children. And then it extended into bestiality, sex with animals. Society is going this way. Now you're supposed to call pedophiles minor attracted persons. We're to be compassionate towards them because they are a quote-unquote marginalized community. Some Christian who was arrested and freed by the and charges dismissed by the court and filed a civil suit, homosexuals were protesting his vindication by the court, saying that this will further add to the biases against a marginalized community, meaning transvestites and homosexuals. You deprive somebody of freedom of religion, freedom of speech, in order to protect a marginalized community who believe they have the right to make homosexual and sexual advantages towards children. Crazy. Well, this is the kind of thing that drove God so angry. Yes, he heard the cries of the Israelites in Egypt. He heard their cries, but he also saw the wickedness of the Egyptians, of Pharaoh, and of the Canaanites. So, yes, God was going to deliver his people and send them, bring them to the land he promised to their patriarchal forefathers. Yes, that is true. However, he was also going to do it in judgment against those heathen nations that inhabited that land and engaged in these unnatural and morally abominable practices, including the slaughter, sacrificial slaughter of children and the sexual violation of children and homosexual violation of children. It made God very angry and it's making him angry again. Now, this is a picture of what we are facing. Yes, the Lord will rescue ultimately the church. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. God will say, that's enough. I'm getting my people out of here. I'm getting, I'm getting, uh, them, I'm getting the church out of here. The, I'm getting the faithful believers out of here. Let's put it that. That's the best way. I'm getting the faithful believers out of here. That is true. But it is also in the book of Revelation, the cup of his wrath fills up drop by drop. Again, as you may have heard me mention, this is commemorated in the Passover Seder, the Paschal meal. Only now they use a saucer, but it's called a cup where they count out the drops of the uh, judgments on Egypt. We've talked about this. The cup of God's wrath is being filled. It is going to be poured out. He's seen what these governments are doing, what Biden is doing. And, and Obama, and these, what they've done with empowering homosexuals to do this in schools at taxpayer expense, going after children. This makes God's blood boil. Whether they believe it or not, he will destroy these people. It is very unlikely they will repent. Romans 1 tells us it is very unlikely that those who do these things or those who approve of it are going to repent. Very few of them will repent. Very few. Well, the meek shall inherit the earth. 
the way God's judgment came on those other civilizations who were inhabiting biblical Israel, and God gave that land to those to whom he promised it, he's going to do the same thing. His judgment is going to come on the world, those who are given to these abominations. And then once more he shall give it to those to whom he promised it. The meek shall inherit the earth. We have to understand when we look at Exodus, as we always say, we're not just looking at the past, we're looking at the present in light of the past, and we are using the past to understand the coming future. Yes, we are looking at the ancient history of the Israelites, but we are looking at a situation that is analogous to it in our own lifetime. And we are looking at prophecy, typological prophecy. These things happen again in some way. What happened then is a foreshadowing. I hope everybody can understand the way I'm explaining it. <laughs> but we will take questions at the end as usual in case I'm not communicating it so easily. So these things happened. They're happening now and they're going to happen again. What happened with Israel is going to happen with faithful believers. Now let's look. Verse 5, once again, the Lord brings you to the land, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. They were doing abominable things. Now remember, Canaan was to be a servant, an aved, a slave. The Hebrews gave some of these civilizations, they were given a chance. Make peace with us, accept our domain, or we're going to get rid of you. But they were given terms of surrender. They were given terms of surrender. They didn't just go in and wipe them all out. They were given terms of surrender. Modern Israel is the same. These people who proliferated, multiplied in the absence of the Hebrews or a heathen people. They believe in a satanic religion called Islam. In Islam, the only assurance of salvation is to be shahadi, to die in a jihad. You can see Shia Muslims on films dragging little kids, and the kids are crying, no mommy, no mommy, la ama, la ama, in Arabic, while bearded mullahs are hacking the kids' heads open with hatchets. This same kind of mutilation of children is what happened with the Canaanites. Now it is happening under the guise of Islam. It is pagan. It is heathen. The same kinds of things. The human sacrifice. Breeding children to be suicide bombers. You can have up to four wives. Of course, Lesha Muhammad, he had more than that. Um, taking the the virginity of Aisha when she was nine years old, marrying her when she was six. Rich oil shakes doing the same thing. Taking little girl, what's wrong with it? Our prophet did it. He's... Now, I'm not saying all Muslims do this, but I'm saying Islam does it. And it's going on to this very hour. 
the Lord will replace and displace this heathen culture, religion. They have a chance to make the peace with the Israelis. The Israelis are told in the Old Testament, when you come back, don't suppress the sojourner who dwells among you. And they haven't. Arab Israelis have co-equal rights as Israelis. They have a higher standard of living and a higher standard of political freedom than Arabs do in most of the surrounding countries. You see the lie being taught. Israel is apartheid. 22% of Israel's university students are Arabs receiving free education from the Israeli taxpayer. 20% of the practicing physicians in Israel are Arabs. There is no apartheid. This is a lie. To see the oppression of Arabs, you have to see what Hamas has done to its own people in Gaza. You have to see the exploitation of the Palestinian authority of their own people. You have to see what happened in Black September in 1970 in Jordan. You have to see the Syrian government backed by Putin systematically and genocidally exterminating 300,000 Arabs in Syria. These abuses do happen to Arabs, but not at the hands of Israelis. They happen at the hands of each other. It is a heathen, demonic, religious culture. What happened in the days of the Exodus is happening now. <coughs> These alienations occupied the land and multiplied and corrupted it with practices that God finds abhorrent. I once watched a film, a news clip. I can speak Hebrew and I can speak a bit of Arabic. I can kind of speak, speak it. And I watched this. They had a borderline mentally retarded Arab boy in the West Bank who was a suicide bomber. They indoctrinated him and told him he was going to get 70 virgins or 72 virgins, whatever. And they put explosives around his waist and his chest with a cord to pull it to kill Israelis. He was intercepted. Now, I was watching this, and I understood what the Israelis were saying to him. The ordnance disposal soldiers, specialists, the, the bomb disposal specialists, were talking to an Israeli soldier who spoke Arabic. A lot of Israelis speak Arabic. And their parents came from Arabic countries or grandparents and so forth. And the ordnance disposal specialists were telling the soldier who spoke Arabic what to tell the kid to do. Now, don't move this. Don't touch this. Cut this. Here's the scissors. Cut it very slowly. They were trying to save the kid's life to stop the bomb from going off. They were on back of barriers, and they were trying to save the life of this borderline re mentally retarded young Arab kid. This was he's trying to save his life. He was sent to murder Jews, but the Jews were trying to save the kid's life. I watched it. And I understand what's going on. They had a BBC reporter, an Irish woman named Ora Gorling, 
making it look like the Israelis were doing something wrong. She was saying, we wanted to interview the youth, but the Israelis would not allow us to have him or let him tell his side of the story. That's her exact words. That was her exact words. Crazy. 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 Now, my mother was Irish Catholic, and she was what was known as Fenian. She was a, an organization in America called NORAID that supported the IRA financially and did political activism in America against the British government. And I tried to tell her, look, the IRA of today is the provisional IRA. It is not Michael Collins. It is not the IRA of history. Those guys were partisans. They were soldiers. They were not terrorists. These guys are gangsters and terrorists. But a lot of Irish Americans bought into this, this thing. And uh, I recall I was in Australia watching the news, and I'd been to Northern Ireland many times, and I watched the, the news report of a bombing in Oma, Oma, Northern Ireland, and they, a little four-year-old little Catholic girl was killed. She was four years old among the victims. They didn't care. It didn't matter to them. This was a heathen, savage act willing to kill their own children. But these are my own people, you understand, on my mother's side. I love Ireland. I love the Irish. I don't agree with all the policies of the British or the Irish government by any means. But this, well, it is not only Muslim Arabs who do this. I've seen my own kind do it. But God, of course, looks upon it with horror. How can you do this to little kids? How can you do this? There's a demonic power on back of this terrorism. Now, it doesn't matter. The so-called provisional IRA, they will do it in the name of Roman Catholicism. The Muslims will do it in the name of Islam. It's all done in the name of the devil. And it's getting worse. Don't expect it to get better until Jesus comes. Don't expect it to get better. These things are unspeakable. Now let's look. What these nations were doing is what Islam was doing. But not only Islam. During the Crusades, during those 200 years plus, when Israel was in the hands of the Latin Kingdom, the Crusades, Europeans, you had children's Crusades, St. Bernard. <laughs> they made him a saint. I wonder they named the dog after him. They were sending children in human wave attacks. They did the same thing as what the Muslims do. The same thing. The Roman Catholic Church did the same thing as the Muslims. I'm not singling out Muslims. I'm not singling out Arabs. Europeans did the same thing. My own kind did the same thing. Man has fallen. 
But the way it was then is the way it's become now. And it's the way it's going to be when Jesus comes back. He's going to drive these heathen nations out for their abominations and their murder and what they do to children. He's going to drive them out and give the land to those to whom he promised it. The meek shall inherit the earth. Of course, the White House lies, the European Union lies, the United Nothing lies, the Arab League lies. They all lie. The mainstream media doesn't know how to doesn't know how to do anything but lie. They don't know how to tell the truth. But God's word tells us the truth. The same things going on then are going on now. This is not just history. It is prophecy. It is not just what happened then. It's what is happening now and what is going to happen again in the future. We must understand that when we understand Exodus. Otherwise, we are missing the point. Yes, it's about what God did. But it's about what God, that same God, is going to do. Let us continue, please. He swore it to your fathers. The fact that God swore it doesn't matter to the liberal Protestants who are pro-Palestinian, so-called. I'm pro-Palestinian too. I'm pro-Palestinian Christians who are being persecuted and martyred for their faith by the Muslims. They don't take that into account. People like Gary Burge and Steven Sizer avoid that. But God doesn't. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, hag matzot, feast of unleavened bread. Seven days there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days. Nothing leaven shall be seen among you. Nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. During the millennial reign of Christ, sin will not be tolerated. Sin will not be socially tolerated. There'll be no leaven. You shall tell your son on that day, and we read this last week, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. For it shall serve as a sign to you. Notice a sign. It shall serve as a sign to you on your hand, semel, and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Now, Notice verse 9 once again. On your forehead and on your hand. On your hand and on your forehead. This relates to, although it is not the same as, but it relates to a number of other passages in Scripture speaking about sealing or engraving on the flesh. By God. By God, first of all. Obviously, 
there's Ezekiel chapter 8 and 9. Let's look at Ezekiel 8 and 9 very, very briefly. Not our subject now. But worth looking at. Verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Go through the city of midst of the city, even the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed in the midst. This relates to that. Revelation chapter 7, the 144,000. It relates to that. It relates to these things. But what we see is this. In God's kingdom, those who are his are engraven on their head and hand. Turn with me, of course, to Revelation chapter 13. Verse 16, and he causes all, the small, the great, the rich, and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And it's related to being able to buy and sell, materialism, finance, temporal riches. The Antichrist is going to make people rich, we're told. He's going to be a payoff artist, magna cum laude. Well, I shouldn't say cum laude, but he's going to be a sensational payer of bribes. In, in some way, he's going to benefit those who do his bidding, we're told in Daniel. Um, <clears throat> remember, the Antichrist comes on a white horse, as it were, appears just as Christ comes on a white horse in Revelation 19. He tries to imitate Jesus. He tries to counterfeit the millennial reign of Christ. We've said this a lot of times. In Christ, the people of God have the divine engraving on their head what they think and on their hand what they do. Satan will have his counterfeit. Antichrist will counterfeit Christ. But it goes back here to this chapter, Exodus 13. Unless we grasp what's being said here in Exodus 13, we cannot understand what's being said in Revelation 13. Satan will always try to mimic counterfeit. Now, whether this mark is literal, well, I'm sure it'll be quite literal for the Antichrist. But when God does it, it seems it could be not per se literal, but spiritual. When God does it, it seems to be spiritual. When Satan does it, it seems to be literal. Also, because we are graven on God's Christ's hand, the stigmata referring to him being crucified, 
we are graven on his hand, okay? Um, the emphasis on the New Testament is being sealed on the forehead, okay? Being sealed on the forehead. Nonetheless, we see something here that gives us a hint, dim view, looking forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 13, what the Antichrist will indeed do, okay? Be a sign. Those who keep God's law. Now, let me explain this. If you're not Jewish, uh, I don't know how to explain it too well. There's something called putting on, you know, like phylacteries? Phylacteries long, when Jesus said, there's something called tefillin. Observant Jews put on tefillin. And it's like a ribbon-like strap with a box, with a box, with Bible verses from the Torah in it. And the scriptures say you shall bind them on your arms, you shall bind them on your forehead, okay? They put the box here with this ribbon. It's wrapped around the arm, and then on the hand, you wrap it around the fingers in such a way you make the Hebrew letter shin, shin, which is the word for tooth, and it's pronounced S-H, S-H, like shout, shout, shin, tooth, shenayim. But it's the name of a letter that looks like teeth, shin, which is the first word of shma. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. And every morning an Orthodox Jew will put on the tefillin on his forehead. He'll wrap it around his arm and he'll make the letter Shin on his hand. And so we have the tragedy of Orthodox Jews doing something of tremendous significance. culturally, religiously, ritually, and only having a minute amount of understanding about what it is, what it means, and why they do it. <laughs> God told them to do it. They'll say that, okay? And then maybe they'll say something of the, the shin is like shma. They'll say that. And God's law shall be bind on our head and... Uh, most unfortunate it has to do with putting on or relate it has to do with putting on to fill in okay therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year it is to be annual now it shall come about that when the Lord brings you to the land of Canaan as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you. You shall divide to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belonging to the Lord. Again, the firstborn male, which always, always, in some way, connects with Jesus as the firstborn of the Father. But this is a huge subject. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem. 
there's a Moriel teaching, if you have not heard it, it is on the website. It is called Pidion Haben. Pidion Haben. <coughs> Where the donkey had to be redeemed or its neck would be broken. The donkey had to be redeemed or its neck would be broken. Now, I don't want to go into it now. I, we can't. It's to be too long. But remember, if a donkey is redeemed, remember Balaam's donkey could speak the word of God? Or the donkeys carried Jesus on Passover, on the, the triumphal entry? Okay. A donkey that's redeemed and a donkey that's not redeemed. An unredeemed donkey is seen in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's stubborn, it's stupid, and it's only led by its passions. It's described in Ezekiel 16, and it describes people who reject God's standards of morality as 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 hamorim as as this. Okay, the human race are <laughs> there. There are a herd of donkeys, <laughs> people are stubborn, people are stupid. And people are led by passion. They're how Ezekiel describes donkeys. Okay. Um, but a redeemed donkey, like Balaam's donkey, a redeemed donkey is, is in the character of Balaam's donkey, or the donkeys that carry Jesus. You know, you can't help being born a human being. Sorry, but if you're a homo sapien, you may as well, spiritually, you may as well be a jackass. Man is fallen. The question is, are you going to be redeemed or not? Now, this is called Pidion Haben. Pidion Haben, if you've not listened to it, you can avail yourself of it. It's available for free, but it's a longer teaching, more than I can explain right now. And you shall redeem with a lamb. Now, notice it talks about a donkey and a lamb. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Lamb, Jesus being the lamb of God, but lamb is also a picture of a new believer. Feed my lambs. The first offspring of every beast that you own, but it specifically names a lamb, and it specifically names, of all things, a donkey. But there is a reason. But if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Well, what's it going to be? You're a donkey. Are you going to be redeemed or are you going to have your neck broken? A stiff-necked people. Now, I know that it's sometimes derogatorily used about the Jews, but it's about the human condition. A stiff-necked people who are stubborn and persisting in their wickedness. The Bible calls this, refers to, or describes this as being stiff-necked. Those who are stiff-necked will have their necks broken. You break a donkey's neck, it dies. Those who will not repent, who are stiff-necked, will have their necks broken. You can't help being a, a, a jackass. If you're a human being, you're a jackass. doesn't matter how smart you are or how wealthy you are, how educated you are, whatever. We're a herd of jackasses. But we can be redeemed. We can carry Jesus and his message of salvation. We can speak the word of God like Balaam's donkey if the donkey is redeemed. Okay. So you've got the donkey and you've got the Lamb. I again refer you to the recorded teaching. Pidion Haben. 
And it shall come about when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? You shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And again, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that this is a foreshadowing of being saved out of the fallen world. We were slaves to sin. Okay. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. In other words, these animals prefigured in the sacrificial, the Levitical sacrificial system, these animals prefigured the Messiah. God would give his own firstborn in our place that we may be redeemed, not die. So, it shall serve as a sign on your hand. There it is again. And as phylacteries, like putting on the tefillin, on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not leave them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, if you know who that was. He was the British military officer who spoke Arabic and he understood Arabic culture and he understood Islam. And he organized the Bedouin Arab tribes to fight the Turks who were the allies of Germany in World War I, in the First World War. This was Lawrence of Arabia. He made that journey by foot. Only he didn't go from Egypt to Israel. He went from Israel to Egypt. But he took the short route via Philistia, via the Gaza Strip, going across what was probably the Book of Egypt, known as El Arish, El Arish, coming that way, south of the Mediterranean coast, on the north. This tells us that the Israelites did not cross the Nile in the north. It had to be somewhere substantially further to the south. God wanted it to be a difficult, cumbersome journey. We don't want to go all the way back there again. <laughs> oh, it was only a couple of weeks. We can walk it. No, no, no. <laughs> now, it shouldn't have taken them 40 years in theory. That was because of their sin. But it was a longer, more arduous journey. He didn't want it to be easy. God does not want our life in this world to be easy. It'll be easy when we enter the land of milk and honey. It will be easy during the millennial reign of Christ. It'll be easy in eternity. Sugar, spice, everything nice, no problem. Guaranteed God's personal assurance. Yes, that awaits us. But in the meantime, there's war. They fought the Amorite. They fought the Canaanite. They fought the Hittite. 
It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, there's no discharge from war. When somebody is saved, they have enlisted in com into a combat brigade. Oh, the Lord's going to bless you. Well, that's true. And the Lord is going to give you peace. That's true. But his peace, not as the world gives peace. Not the Greek word erin, an absence of conflict, but shalom, a peace with God, a peace that passes all understanding. As we often say, ultimately, God's peace, his shalom, will include the absence of conflict. The nations will beat their spears into pruning hooks. Ultimately, it will include that. In the meantime, as it says in Ecclesiastes, there's no discharge from war. When you are born again, when you enter the service of Christ, when you begin to follow Christ, you enter into a spiritual war. Even silly things like tonight. We couldn't get this transmission to work right. Stuff was going wrong in Los Angeles. Stuff was going wrong in England. What's going wrong? Be not surprised, brethren, when a fiery ordeal comes upon you. Your enemy goes around looking for someone to devour like a lion. He knows his time is short. Satan doesn't like, even, even Bible studies like this, Satan does not want people hearing them. We're in a war. We're in a war. We're always being harassed, targeted, whatever. Some Christians are being persecuted. We're in a war. And people by nature don't like war. Well, some do, but if they do, they do, they've got a problem. Nobody likes war, but we accept the reality of it. Um Oh, no, we just want things nice and we just want to go to church and have a nice life. No, 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 no. That is not reality. The world is in the power of the wicked one. We have escaped from Egypt. We are going to the promised land. When the Lord returns, the Canaanite will be driven out. Then we'll have Irene. Now, we have shalom. Then we will have both shalom and derin. But now we have his peace, not peace as the world gives. There's no peace in war. There's no peace in war. You, you, you just look. Man's efforts to make peace are never going to work. World War I was to be the war that ends all wars. The devastating costs and casualty figures of World War I were unbelievable. Whole families wiped. I don't live far from Brookwood Cemetery in England. You wouldn't believe how many whole families, villages nearly, entirely decimated. It was only the Blitz, the civilian casualties, that made World War II worse than World War I for the British. Oh, we have to have a war that ends all wars. That's what Wilson and the Americans were saying. And then they had the League of Nations. We're not going to have, we're going to have, the, that was the predecessor to the UN. 20 years later, they're fighting the Germans again. <laughs> and it was even worse. Oh, people in Poland were so happy when the Iron Curtain came down. Now you've got the Wagner Group on the border. And Belarus and the Polish army is 
mobilizing at the border again. They were flying helicopters across the border into Poland yesterday. I did. There's no peace. We all want, but it's not, there's no peace. There'll be no peace till the Prince of Peace comes. Well, Christians are humans. They don't like conflict. They don't like war. They don't like peace. Well, I don't like it either. But it is the reality. Even in the world, you have naive, visionary utopians. Some of them are really just cowards, but a lot of them are just misguided, visionary utopians. I remember when I was a hippie. So both, they gave a war and nobody came. Yeah. <laughs> well, why is it that historically peace has only come through strength? The bad guys like Stalin and Putin and then Hitler, just because you demobilized and you're pacifist, they're going to leave you alone. They see that as weakness and opportunity. Peace can only come through strength. Why? The world has fallen. Any liberal idiot who's into appeasement and things like they think that you can placate bad guys. They don't know anything about history or human nature. And they certainly don't know anything about the Bible. Well, spiritually, it's the same thing. We are to be at peace with the world with uns insofar as it depends on us. But the world hates Christ. The world's in the power of the wicked one and it hates Christ. And they're going to hate those who are in Christ. There's no getting around this. But it's not a new phenomenon. When they see war, they'll want to go back to Egypt. They won't want to fight. They don't want to pick up the sword. Well, this is the sword. And in the United States, the epicenter of modern democracy, crooked cops locked up a Christian teenager for reading it because it was offending homosexuals who hate it. And what? Now, in the end, we win. Christ can't lose. In the end, we win. But that's not to say we don't lose a lot of battles. <laughs> but we win the war. When Christ was crucified, Satan thought he won. God pulled the gambit, the resurrection. In the end, Jesus always wins. And those who are in Christ always win in the end. In the meantime, it's not easy. And it's not going to get any easier. Go this way. Do not lead them by the Gaza Strip. That's too close. Don't take them to El Arish. Take them another way. That's further. Hence God let the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. This indicates that the crossing would have been possibly across the Gulf of Aqaba, down by Shadam al-Sheikh. I am very convinced, well, the New Testament tells us in Galatians that Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai was in Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, where the house of Saud is trying to build that city, Neon. That's where it is. That's interesting in itself. 
So the sons of Israel went up in martial array and the land of from the land of Egypt. Notice in martial array. In other words, they marched in military fashion as an army. They didn't leave as refugees. They left as an army. They left as an army. When the British army, when I go to France, I, I go into Dunkirk a lot. Take the ferry to Dunkirk from Dover. If I, if I drive, and instead of Calais, I go to Dover a lot. Uh, from Dover to Cal, uh, Dunkirk. And the British army, when they evacuated Dunkirk, they didn't come back as refugees. They came back as an army still ready to fight. They turned around and went back again at Normandy with Eisenhower and Montgomery. They didn't leave as refugees. They left in martial formation. They came back as an organized army ready to continue to fight unto victory. Well, that's the way it is. They went out in martial array. They went out in military formation ready for war. When you get saved, realize you're putting on a uniform to be in God's army. The word we translate, hosts of heaven. In Hebrew, it's sevaot hashamayim. It means the armies, the armies of the Lord. Adonai sevaot, Lord of hosts, Lord of the armies. Now look at this, verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God shall surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Remember, the Exodus is a picture of the rapture and resurrection. They brought Joseph's bones with them. The dead in Christ rise first. We come out together. Those who remain and those who have departed, we come out together. This is a picture of the rapture and resurrection occurring simultaneously. That's where they bought Joseph's bones. It doesn't matter if you're alive when the Lord comes or if you've given up the ghost. We come out together. We meet the Lord, of course, in the air. But let's look. Verse 20. Then they shall set out from Sukkot. Now, that's an interesting term, booths. It's the term for booths. Same for the Feast of, of Tabernacles, Hag Sukkot. They set out from a place called Sukkot and camped in Itam, on the edge of the wilderness. In other words, there was still aggregable land. There was still water resources around. In the beginning, it wasn't that tough. There was still water resources around. They had not yet entered the actual desert. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud. That is the Shekinah. Now we read what this means for us in 1 Corinthians 10. The baptized in the water and the cloud. The Shekinah by day to lead them on the way. And in a pillar of fire by night. The flame is called the Shalhevet Yah. The flame of Yahweh. The Holy Spirit will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. <clears throat> Remember when Abraham made the sacrifices, the Shalhevet Yah, the flame of the Lord, went in between the bisected carcass of the sacrificed animals. But Abraham didn't. God knew from the beginning that he would keep the covenant, but his 
people wouldn't. He is faithful and we are unfaithful. That's why Jesus had to become one of us to make up for our infidelity. Man did not keep it. So therefore God had to become a man so we could keep our end of the bargain. We fail. Israel failed. The church failed. You fail. I fail. We all feel fail to keep our end of the deal. The Lord is faithful and we are unfaithful, but we all fail to keep our end of the bargain as men. That is why God had to become a man. Jesus kept it for us. A man had to keep man's end of the deal, but no man could do it. So God became a man in the person of Jesus. It is only in him we can be justified. Only in him. Okay? So we have the flame and we have the cloud. And he did not take away the pillar or cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now next week I will look at one or two more aspects of chapter 13 very briefly as a preface to chapter 14 but we shall continue next week with chapter 14.